0: this microphone back I think it works better up here than down here so uh, Psalm chapter 58 Psalm 58 is where we'll begin we're gonna be looking at a number of the Psalms this morning and so you do well to have a Bible open to that place and uh, we'll be following along through a number of Psalms and then into the New Testament uh, in our time of study right now Psalm 58 good to see you this morning I was gone last week. I was holding a meeting with the Highway 65 Church in Conway, and uh, some of you came over and heard me and saw me. I appreciate that so much. Uh, so I haven't really been gone, but I have been gone from here. It's good to be kind of on my home court. And uh, good to be here before you and be with you again. Uh, so uh, appreciate those who filled in for me, particularly Taryn, who took on my class, and uh, appreciate that so much. Uh, I guess Zach filled in. I don't know. I don't, know. I don't know how that works, but uh, anyway, that did a good job from what I heard and uh, so I appreciate uh, those guys uh, filling in while I was away. Uh, Psalm 58 beginning of verse 6. Psalm 58 verse 6 says, O God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away. When He aims His arrows, let them be blunted. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime, like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. Sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he sweep them away. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. Welcome to Q&A morning. We have a question that stems, as you can see, from a very, very challenging and brutal and ugly text. And so uh, I want to get up and get the remote so that I can show you what's on the PowerPoint. There it is. So uh, I've been asked a question based on this text and a number like it uh, that I think will be worth our time. I had planned on having two questions this morning for our Q&A morning and uh, this one became bigger and bigger and bigger and so I decided we're just gonna have this one question and the question is uh, phrased this way, do the imprecatory Psalms contradict Jesus' teaching on cursing? An imprecatory is a word used to describe psalms like this, psalms that have a curse in them, okay? So you can see in this text that there is a call on God to punish or harm certain people. That's what cursing is. The word imprecatory is just a big, long word that means cursing, okay? So the, the psalms that have cursing in them, do they contradict Jesus' teaching on cursing? That's the question. And uh, the idea is, how do we understand and put these two things together? Some people, including some of the versions of the Book of Common Prayer that's used by the Anglican Episcopalian churches, uh, they have eliminated these psalms from the public reading. They don't read what I just read publicly, publicly, and they say that's unworthy of what's in the New Testament. So they seem to see a kind of contradiction between what's in the Psalms and what's in the New Testament. And that makes us nervous, right? How do we understand? Is there something in the Old Testament that we say, you know what, that's not really worth our listening. It's not in the right spirit. So we have a question here about how we understand these two things. Now, strictly speaking, an imprecatory psalm is a prayer. In fact, all curses are prayers. Uh, We are asking God to do something. And they are requests made of God, but they're a particular kind of prayer. And uh, so I want us to think about and look at this question. Now, there are a number of psalms. I counted 12 uh, that have curses like this in them. You'll probably find more because sometimes there are little statements within a psalm. This is sort of a more extended section. You can see that. Uh, We've got like five or six verses here all in a row. Uh, so those are the ones that we're going to focus on more this morning. But I-, I want you to see that most of these psalms take a particular shape. Okay, first of all, they describe wicked people. Okay, so look in verse 3 of Psalm 58. So, verse 3 says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ear, so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or of the cunning enchanter. All right, so you have a, a description of people who are awful and they're doing awful things. They're speaking lies. They go astray from birth. Okay, and he likens them to snakes. And so there, you can see how that would be a, a picture of the evil they would do and the harm they would do to others. So, then these psalms usually call on God to vindicate and punish. So, there is always in judgment the idea that God's going to be on the side of the righteous person and punish the one who is wicked. So, in these psalms, you have that dichotomy do something to them and do something good for the rest. So, verse 6 of this psalm says, O God, break the teeth in their mouths. Okay, so I think that goes back to the idea of the the snake, the serpent, okay, that's going to try to bite. Okay, break the teeth in their mouths, and then in verse 6 another image, tear out the fangs of the young lions. Okay? So you have all of these ideas of they are gonna hurt but I want you to stop their desire to hurt and thwart it and instead bless those who are righteous. Uh, verse 10, the righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance he will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Now that imagery is just disgusting I mean it's it's hard for us to swallow The idea of bathing feet in the blood of other people. um, It's hard to see any good in it. And that's the reason why we have these kinds of questions like, wow, how is that in the Bible? How can that be a noble thought? But what I want you to see is instead of just focusing on that language and how hard it is, I want you to see that what's really going on here is just the description of wicked people and a call on God to vindicate and to punish. So the real feeling is it is an oppressed people asking for judgment. Okay, calling out God help us help us help us and sometimes that language is far more graphic than we would like But that idea doesn't trouble us, does it the idea of saying God help God help God take care of them and punish them? So uh, let's look at a couple more look in Psalm 59 the next one over Uh, Sometimes it's not even clear just what it is that this judgment or this punishment would be so look in Psalm 59 in verse 11 Psalm fifty nine, eleven, kill them not, lest my people forget. Make them totter by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. For the sin of their mouths, the words of their lips, let them be trapped in their pride, for the cursing and lies that they utter. Consume them in wrath, consume them till they are no more, that they may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. Now there's some trouble in that text. Did you notice it? First verse eleven says, Kill them not. Okay? So it's not just about make them die. But instead they're sort of make them totter take take them down. We might say Uh, and then in verse 13 consume them in wrath Well, wait a minute. I thought we weren't gonna kill them We're gonna consume them instead and then at the end of verse 13 consume them till they are no more That they may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth Well, if they're consumed how do they know that how can there be some kind of redemptive purpose where they understand something deeper about God and grow from that knowledge and are blessed by that knowledge if all they are is consumed okay, so you have What I'm getting at here is the language is not very precise. It is instead more like what we would call just an oppressed people asking for judgment. Help us, help us, help us. Take care of them, get rid of them. Maybe do this, maybe do this. You do what you feel is best, but we need something here. And so there is sort of a, I see almost schizophrenic in in Psalm 59, these verses, because he's not sure what he wants, but he needs help. And so he's calling on God to get that help. Sometimes though there is a redemptive purpose. Look in Psalm 83 with me. Psalm 83. So Psalm 83 and verse 9. Due to them as you did to Midian and to, as to Sisera and Jabin at the river Kishon who were destroyed at Endor, who became dung for the ground. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeeb and all their princes like Zeba and Zalmanah, who said, let us take possession for ourselves of the pastures of God. So here are people that tried to wipe out Israel. He says, make these people like the people who tried to wipe out Israel in the past, where you delivered and you saved and you punished them. Verse 13. Oh, my God, make them like whirling dust, like chaff before the wind, as fire consumes the forest, as the flame sets them out in the blaze, so that you may pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your hurricane. Fill their faces with shame, that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace, that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. Did you notice verse 16 there? Fill their faces with shame, that they may seek your name. You see, there's some kind of hope that maybe you can humble them, They could be ashamed, and then they'll seek your name. And then, of course, that same idea in verse 18, that they may know that you are the one who is most high over the earth. So there is redemptive idea here, too, where it's not just kill them, although he does say kill them. Uh, It's not just consume them, although he does say consume them. It's also change their spirit in some way, humble them so that they'll begin to seek you and understand something better about you. So I cannot talk about the imprecatory psalms without talking about the two worst ones, which, surprisingly, that number two does not include the one we started with about the snail dissolving into its own slime. Okay, it's not that one, believe it or not. Which, by the way, I, I know that I probably gave all our young people a verse that they're going to love to read from now on, the one about the, the snail dissolving into its own slime. But uh, there are two that are particularly graphic that we need to talk about if we're going to broach this topic, because these are the ones that are the, the big ones in the Old Testament. Look in Psalm 109. Psalm 109, and this is an extended reading. You can see, uh, and you'll see it as we go along, how this is sort of an overkill idea. Psalm 109, beginning in verse 6. It says, appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he has tried, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer be counted as sin. May his days be few. May another take his office. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. May the creditor seize all that he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his toil. Let there be none to extend kindness to him, nor any to pity his fatherless children. May his posterity be cut off. May his name be blotted out in the second generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord, and let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be before the Lord continually that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth. For he did not remember to show kindness, but pursued the poor and needy and the brokenhearted to put them to death. He loved to curse. Let curses come upon him. He did not delight in blessing. May it be far from him. He clothed himself with cursing as his coat. May it soak into his body like water, like oil into his bones. May it be like a garment that he wraps around him, like a belt that he puts on every day. May this be the reward of my accusers from the Lord, of those who speak evil against my life. Now, to help with the sense of this, I really think that you, we should read this as him or his, as the emphasis. Like in verse 8, may his days be few, may another take his office, may his children be fatherless. Because what this is, is a prayer that all the stuff he's trying to do to me, let it be done to him. Okay? He is trying to hurt me, and I want all his stuff to come back on his head. So that, that's the, the sense of the prayer. Uh, all the evil he's trying to do to David needs to be done to him. But we can't really go along with a lot of this language. At least I can't personally. Um, the idea of punish, basically punish him, punish his children. You know, take care of all the stuff, take it all away, and blot out his memory and all that stuff. It just seems like I, I mentioned the word overkill. I think that's the word. Uh, it seems like too much. So while I can't go along with some of the language, I think we can understand the idea. When evil people do evil things to God's people, what do God's people do? They ask God for help. That's what we do. So that's what's going on here, even though I can't really go along with some of the language. And the, the request here is specifically, repay them for their evil. Do what they wanted to do to me, to them. And so there's a, a prayer for justice. And that is justice in its most literal sense, that what you did to me is done to you. And that's what he's praying for here. But that is an imprecatory psalm. And we have to ask the question, is that, is that somehow contradicted by what Jesus is later going to teach? And uh, Psalm 137 is the other one that is the, the more, most graphic. Psalm 137 is a psalm that appears to have been written in Babylonian captivity. We don't have an author to it, but it is later than most of the psalms because of that setting. Uh, but it is a, it's a psalm of a sorrow, uh, a lament, because of what's happened and then being in a foreign land. Uh, but Psalm 137 and verse 7. It says, Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, Lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. So this is a horrific idea that the Babylonian army, in coming and taking Jerusalem, took Jewish children and killed them, okay, graphically. And uh, so now he's saying, or the psalmist is saying, boy, happy is going to be the person who does to you what you did to us. Okay? Blessed is that one who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Okay? So it is certainly a curse. Uh, it's put in the form of blessing instead of cursing, but it's blessing them for something awful happening to them. Blessed be the one who does an awful thing to you. So that's the idea of this psalm. And, and this is one that is particularly offensive to most people, and you can see why that is. Um, It is though at heart this same idea about repayment of evil and oppressed people asking for judgment So I hope you get a feel for the imprecatory psalms. The imprecatory psalms have a give them what they deserve Feel to them. They're asking God for help, but they often ask for God to help and intervene in violent ways Okay, so that's the idea of what we're doing. So now uh, let's take a minute and talk about Jesus and what Jesus and Paul say about cursing Let's go to Luke chapter 6 We're going to read here Luke 6, beginning in verse 27. Wait for everybody to get there. Luke 6 and verse 27 says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you and from the one who takes away your goods. Do not demand the back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. So Jesus teaches us to respond to the curses of others. You see that there in verse 28 with blessing. Bless those who curse you. Now I would say that the context seems to indicate, based on particularly Matthew chapter 5 and the context that surrounds Matthew 5, which is parallel to this, Seems to indicate that the Jews were taking the eye-for-an-eye principle from the Old Testament, which was a court principle Okay, if I take away your ox you get my ox if I hurt your eye you get you get to hurt my eye But it was not a personal vengeance principle. It was a court principle But people in Jesus time were taking that and making it into a personal vengeance principle, so Whatever you did to me. I get to do right back to you And Jesus is saying that's not the way my people should be instead when somebody hurts us We return good for their evil in our personal situation. So what Jesus commands here, and you can see it in a lot of different forms, is that when people do something ugly or mean or evil to you, you respond with good things. You don't respond with vengeance just because you've been hurt personally. Jesus teaches his disciples that. And that is echoed throughout the New Testament. Uh, this is Paul in Romans 12 and verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Okay, so they do evil to you. Do not curse them. Bless them instead. Say kind things or good things. Blessing is praying to God about them. It's it's a request for God to do good. Cursing, of course, is a request for God to do something that will harm them. Uh, And then James 3 and verses 9, uh, 9 to 10. With it we bless, talking about the tongue. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. So James says cursing. And blessings shouldn't both come out of our mouths. We should be people who are a blessing people not a cursing people So we shouldn't speak evil of one another and James repeats that in several places uh, there, Peter also says the same thing about this um, That we return instead of returning a curse. We return a blessing uh, when others do evil to us, so You see how there's a problem now because those seem to be in Psalms seem to be curses and now New Testament authors seem to be clearly saying don't curse but The situation is a little more complicated than that. This is the reason why I only have one question this morning. Um, The situation is a little more complicated because Jesus and Paul curse. Please don't take that to mean in the way that we use the word curse to talk about cussing, okay, just using ugly words, okay, although those things are related etymologically. No, Jesus and Paul pronounce curses on people, just like we have in Psalms. Uh, So let me show you a couple of places where that happens. Um, You could see this, for example, in the language of the imprecatory psalms. This is Paul in 1 Corinthians 16, If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. O Lord, come. The anathema, maranatha combo. Okay? He says, if you don't have a love for the Lord, let him be accursed. That is not any different from what we've been reading in psalms, is it? Okay? It's, a, it's pronouncing a curse on someone who has no love for the Lord. But if we, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Okay? So pronouncing a curse on someone who would come and preach a different gospel, purporting that it is the same as the gospel of Jesus. Paul says curse them, which is in the forms we've been talking about, a prayer to God. Okay? So you see how that's an issue. Um, but Jesus does it too. Go with me over to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew 10 and verse 14 Th- this idea of cursing in my view comes up a lot when the apostles go out preaching and Jesus goes out preaching and they have certain responses from people Paul does too uh, Matthew chapter 10 and verse 14 Jesus says if anyone will not receive you talking to his disciples or listen to your words shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town truly I say to you it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town so he is saying You'd shake off the dust for your feet, which he says later is a witness or a testimony against them, and that when judgment comes, they're going to be judged. He's pronouncing a judgment on them. Turn the page to Matthew 11 and verse 20. Matthew 11 and verse 20. It says then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you Chorazin, woe to you Bethsaida for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes but I tell you it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you and you Capernaum will you be exalted to heaven you will be brought down to Hades for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom it would have remained until this day but I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. When you see those words, woe to you, okay, that is a curse. That's the form of a curse. And Jesus says that a lot to the scribes and Pharisees, remember? In Matthew 23, particularly, over and over and over again, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. He is saying, God give you woe. God do something to you that's going to cause you to grieve. And that's what he's saying here. Uh, woe to you because things are about to happen to you. You're going to be judged, and it's going to be awful because of what you've done. He denounces them, is the word Matthew uses. This is the same Jesus who told us, "Bless those who curse you." He's the same Jesus, okay? But he does pronounce what we would call a curse. And Paul does something similar when he preaches. Uh, this is in Corinth. Says when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, "Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles." Paul has that mental construct. It seems to me he says that several times. Your blood be on your heads. I'm clean. Okay, I've done what I can. I am innocent of the blood of all men, he says in Acts 20. And the idea seems to be that Paul is saying you're on your own now and your rejection and the curse that comes from it is your fault. It's no longer my fault. I've done my part. I've done what I could. But this is language like a curse. And then there is, and we're not going to look at it for time's sake this morning, in the book of Revelation a number of places, but I'm thinking particularly Revelation chapter 18, where those in heaven are exulting over the falling of this great harlot, this great prostitute, Babylon. And the language is just like an imprecatory psalm. So, I hope you're getting the feel I'm trying to give you, which is this is a much deeper question than it appears to be at first glance. Okay, so, how do we make sense of all of this? Do the imprecatory psalms contradict Jesus' teaching on cursing? First of all, let me just say this. These, I'm going to give you three ideas here that are the best I can do to kind of make this all mesh together, and then you're going to have to deal with it for yourself. So, Some of the problem is with wording and imagery. Okay? When the, part of the issue we have with this is that it just sounds so bad. And like I, that's the reason I started the way I started, where we read this, thing about bathing in the blood of the wicked bathing our feet and we read this thing about uh, the snail dissolving into its own slime and break their teeth and all that kind of thing is because it's just so it's so violent it's so harsh but you know we we talked about this a few months ago when I talked about genocide and I talked about the fact that the Jews in ancient times lived in an entirely different world than we live in and it was a much more violent world and their logic often seems barbaric to us Because we live in a more modern time. And I think that's to be expected. It's to be expected that we live in a different culture than they lived in. And so some things are going to offend our sensibilities more than others. But I think that's part of the disconnect here. Remember, David lives in a time when the enemies of God are trying to kill them. And he asks for God's help. So what do you think he's going to ask for? God, I need your help. They're trying to kill me. Can you maybe incapacitate them? Wound them? I mean, what's he going to ask for? Really? They're trying to kill me. What's natural? Kill them. Stop them. Don't let them win. Because whatever you do, they're probably going to keep trying to kill me. Remember Saul? Okay, where Saul's chasing David. How many times does Saul do the right? I mean, David do the right thing with Saul, and what happens? He keeps coming back, trying to kill him again. How many spears does he have to throw at him before it's like, God, can you please do something? So you see the, the, the difficulty that, that just has to do with wording and imagery. The other part is, I think a great deal of the imagery in these Psalms comes from what they're trying to do to them. So my enemies are trying to do this to me, I want you to do it to them. And so it sounds awful to us and it is awful because awful things the evil people are trying to do to me. So it's God, you see what they're doing and act and, and reward them for their evil. We're looking at a very different perspective here. That's the second thing I would say about this. Any time that you have this feeling, when something strikes us as strangely as these psalms strike us, you know that feeling that you're experiencing as you read that and you think, why is this in the Bible? How can this be? That's not the way I think. That's not the way I pray. That's not the way I live. That feeling is a worldview feeling. Okay? It's a feeling like they are looking at the world in an entirely different way than I am. And we need to pay attention when we have a different worldview than the biblical writer. Okay? Because it means that we need to reconsider the worldview through which we're looking at things. See, the worldview that he is talking about sees the world as good versus evil. Something is going to win and something's going to lose. Either good's going to win or evil's going to win. And for good to win, evil has to lose every time. And if evil wins, good has to lose every time. So this worldview cries out to God. Don't let evil win right now in my situation with these people who are trying to harm me. I'm on your team. And I want you to see that that worldview is not just in the Old Testament. I want you to go with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians 1. 2 Thessalonians 1 and verse 5, it says, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also are suffering, since God indeed considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Notice that this is the New Testament. This is describing the return of Jesus. This is the Christian hope. And he says specifically, verse 6, that it is just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Doesn't that sound like the imprecatory psalms? Okay, that they're going to have done to them what they've tried to do to you. And then he says, verse 7, to grant relief to you who are afflicted. So that same idea of his people crying out for justice and God giving justice and rewarding those who are faithful to him and punishing those who are evil. That same idea is here in the New Testament. So they've done wrong to us. And the hope is that God will restore the world to right, judge the, the wicked, punish the wicked, reward the righteous. When I say that we have a worldview difference a different perspective What I am saying is we've adopted a different worldview because in our time This is the way the world looks at evil evil things happen But there's not much you can do about it And the best you can do if something bad happens to you is learn to live with it and move on That's what our world teaches you Okay, and that is not the perspective of the biblical writer because the biblical writer believes in a God who does not forget evil and a God who will punish evil and restore justice and restore the world to right. So looking to God for a justice we don't see, that's part of the perspective. And finally, and I think this is the key, the issue here is personal vengeance versus asking God's help. David pri- cries out most of these psalms. David is the king. David is a warrior. David is awesome. He could do whatever he wants. And yet he cries out to God for help. Do you remember? What he says when Saul comes to kill him, he says, May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. You hear the difference? May God do something to you. That's a curse. May God punish you. May God give me vengeance, but my hand shall not be against you. There is a world of difference in saying, I need God's help. God needs to punish you. And saying, God needs to punish you, and I'm the instrument. Or God needs to punish you because you've done wrong to me. That is not the issue. This is not a personal vengeance issue. So Paul says in Romans chapter 12, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So we don't take vengeance, but we call on God for vengeance. And that's where Jesus' teaching fits. Jesus' teaching is you don't take personal vengeance. Someone strikes you on the one cheek, you turn the other to him. But you can cry out for God to help and for God to do something to help out in that situation. Not because you've been hurt, but because God punishes evil. So, let me summarize, and we'll be done. If curses are about God getting involved in our personal squabbles and our fusses, then we should learn to bless and not curse. But if curses are about God telling God to preserve justice and notice evil, then we stand in a long line of people who have done that, including Jesus. So, I don't believe these things contradict, but I do believe we need to pay attention to the idea that we don't curse people just because they hurt us personally. All right. Now, having said all that, I don't feel comfortable. You will not hear me praying. Let them, like snails, dissolve into their own slime. Okay? I don't feel comfortable with some of the language, but I do believe it's always appropriate to pray to God to see and to, to uh, judge the oppression of his people. Thanks so much for your attention. We'll be dismissed.